Welcome to No Concessions, another movie podcast where we explore subgenres of films. This week's subgenre is movies filmed locally. Today I've got two special guests with me. Let's start with you. All right, greetings, uh, salutations. My name is DK Aniwo, and I am on this podcast. Yeah. How about you? I am Drew Steck. I am also on a podcast. Hooray! Hooray! Huzzah! So today we're reviewing. What was it, 1989's My Blue Heaven? It was shot in 89. It was released in 1990. Okay. All right. Wide cool. release, yes. Wide release. All right, rad. So let's start off with the questions that we've all prepared for. Well, not me, because I've answered the questions multiple times. All right, Drew, let's ask what movie you wish you saw on release day. This was actually the... Like most cop out answer, but I kept thinking about other movies that I wish I would have seen, and most of the ones that have shaped my life personally are ones that I actually saw, so that I saw in theaters. Um, there just really two that stood out that was like, okay, this is where people it changed how they went to the movies and how they viewed going to the movies while they were watching the movie, which would have been Jaws and Star Wars essentially in recent memory. Gone with the Wind would have been another one to, for people to see like for the first time ever, <laughs> just because it is the most watched movie of all time essentially in terms of like number of tickets sold. So to see like the first viewing of that would have been kind of interesting, but um, you know maybe Citizen Kane in there as well. But those are all like super cop out answers, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Because I mean, Gone with the Wind, I think would have been interesting to see just to see how it was presented at the time and like how theater technology has changed and what it looked like, what it sounded like. I think that would be interesting. But Citizen Kane, I've never seen Gone with the Wind, by the way. But Citizen Kane is probably one of the most boring movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and so it's like, did people even get it? Did they even like get that this was like a big jump forward or were they just kind of like yawn or were they just riveted about Rosebud like the whole time? Because like even in film school, kids are like, nah, I'm down, I'm down on this. So like that's where like, yeah, it's, I could go really deep on like random answers. But for me, it's really like a tentpole film that most people going to the movies, it changed their perception of what that looked like while they're watching the movie. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some recently, but I'd say all of them piggyback. Like, Jaws changed how people went to the movies. They, people said, you have to go see this movie. And, and everyone did, essentially. That's interesting. I had no idea that it was set up like that. It like was like that. the biggest blockbuster at the time and then kind of opened the door for Star Wars, essentially. Well, that huh. makes sense. That's yeah. why Steven Spielberg is as lauded as he is. Because I, I, initially, I thought it was just like E.T., and it was just like, oh, E.T. was cool. And then he made, like most other large filmmakers, he made a few other films that were really good. But like as soon as like the late 90s hit, early 2000s, it was over. Yeah, bangers. Like, yo. Steven, stop. Stop. <laughs> because Especially, hold on, what was the last one that he did? It was Super 8, I want to say, that he directed. Super 8 is actually on my list of movies I would have liked to see on release day. Oh, really? I love Super 8. That's one of, I mean, so here's the thing. I did not watch uh, E.T., yeah. Like, as a young, young person, I feel like I saw E.T. as a, an older person. Totally. But I did see it before I saw Super 8. Super 8 was to my generation what E.T. was to other generations. It's kind of like the parallel that I drew. I don't know if that's correct. It's just something that I sort of crystallized in my own mind. What I think about Super 8, too, is interesting, and people don't bring up, is, like, it was Stranger Things before Stranger Things. Like, I, he totally hit that vibe, yeah. and, and nobody admitted it. And they were like, I really like this vibe. But, like, Stranger Things just, like, widened that vibe, like, just broke it and cracked it open. But, like... He was the first one, I think, to say, like, there's a taste for this here, for sure, between him and J.J. Um, collaborating on that. But Close Encounters is the other one I'd say that opened up the door for him besides Jaws. But Jaws was really, like, the biggest blockbuster that kind of, like, changed how people perceive, like, this is a must-go-to movie again, which hadn't happened since about the 40s or since the Golden Age. Yeah, that makes sense. As far as 
Super 8 being the Stranger Things before Stranger Things. I prefer Stranger Things to Super 8 because they nail it better. And they add... I mean, like, you know it's an homage, right? Whereas Super 8 feels like an attempt to get that old thing back. It's like how Stella got a groove back, too, right? You got the groove back once. Yeah. You did it once. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah. But going back again to Jamaica, why do you need to get your groove back? Like how many time? grooves can you possibly have? Yeah. Yeah, right? we can, like, weekend at Bernie's, too. How more dead can he be? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. in the second movie. Where's rigor mortis? Why, yeah, right? Why isn't he all still? And then that, they also go to a Caribbean, if I believe, like, a witch doctor plays in Weekend at Bernie's, too. So there's similar themes there. With yeah. the 80 sequels, I think, for sure. And uh, the why was more so because I just felt like in that moment that it was the time. It, it's something that struck me profoundly watching it the first time through. And like I said, just knowing or at least assuming that other people of previous generations felt a similar sort of level of uh, kinship with that film. I, that's a big part of the reason why. Um, as far as other movies that were on my list, how many how many movies am I allowed? It's just the one? As many as you want. I gave like four, so yeah. I'll just go over the two: Super Eight and actually Lord of the Rings, like the the Phelps Ewing. Great movie. I didn't see it on opening day. Oh, okay. I read the books before, so I was in seventh grade when the trailer for Lord of the Rings came out, and I remember looking at that trailer and thinking, "Good God, that looks fucking awesome." I'm allowed to swear on this, right? Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Uh, I did not get to the theater on opening day, but I had read the books the entire way through. I felt as though I knew the storyline, and I was desperate to see my imagination manifest on the silver screen. Um, and that's a big part of the reason that that's on my list. It was one of those. It was one of the part of the first movies that triggered me to read a book series that sort of reinforced my love of a certain genre of book series that I think have largely gone on to shape me as a human being uh, throughout the rest of my life. That's interesting that you said. Like both of those movies, I saw on opening weekend. Really? Yeah, uh, okay. I have. I used to have a tradition with the homies back before we all left for college or whatever. But every Friday, we would go see a new movie, regardless of what it was. Any movie that came out, we'd just go see one. It doesn't matter. Just pick something on yeah. the board. Super Eight was one that I saw, hmm. and Lord of the Rings was another one that I saw because one of the dudes that I hung out with was obsessed with Tolkien sounds like a good man yeah yeah he was he he was a big fan of Harry Potter but he liked Tolkien because it was more adult fantasy versus Harry Potter where basically all the problems could be solved if somebody had a pistol yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, funny enough somebody wrote fan fiction involving a pistol and uh harry potter was it much shorter no and on h chan or well i guess it was <laughs> much shorter and no it wasn't on h chan thank you h chan thank you very much uh it was it's called harry potter and the methods of rationality ah, it's like hmm. one of the dorkiest things that i've ever heard of but effectively this dude teaches logic through his harry potter fan fiction and at the end of it voldemort just brings a gun with him and he's just like yo like, I'll try anything and I'll fucking shoot you. And I was like, well, Harry, get through a gun, smartass. It was, it was basically written at, from the perspective of, like, if Harry was much smarter. Yeah, exactly. He, he applied logic to the problems that he was having. And basically, it condensed the story from 12 books to one book. Interesting. Hmm. It, was, it, it was something else. They did audio, like an audio play for it. Yeah, so. yeah. It's I downloaded it and then just put 
put it on two times speed and listen to it. I was going to say it's like Michael Bay's uh, Harry Potter, but it's actually the opposite. It's super heady and like a indie film, if that was the uh, <laughs> Michael Deathly Mann's Hallows. Harry yeah, Michael Potter. Mann's Harry Potter. <laughs> a lot of where Harry Potter is like, uh, got a, he's got a divorced wife. He lives on the cigarettes. south side of Los Angeles for no reason. <laughs> There's no continuity with the other films. I don't, I'll never go back to, what's that place called? Hogwarts. Hogwarts. Uh, yeah. I'll never go back. And he's got a New York accent. Yeah. Yeah. lives in california you'll never get me to come back <laughs> flicking cigarettes yeah. uh, all right let's move on to the next question uh movie that you think should have a sequel i struggled with this a lot because i was trying to come up with like an actually good pitch for a sequel um oh and so like level. mine was not like so i came up with a couple that here, here's a so forrest gump 2 where <laughs> he's done everything right he's already done it all and it's just him being sad about jenny and trying to put his life back together, you know, like a like a dad with a dad bod, like dad bod Forrest Gump, and Haley Joel Osment's all grown up, and he's trying to like get him out of the house, but it's like millennial Forrest Gump is Haley Joel Osment's character, who I think was Haley Joel Osment, right, the kid. Hmm? At the end, I'm almost positive, right? I'll take your word on it. Anyway, know, it's '94. That sounds that sounds right. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it might have been. It was. It might have been another famous kid. Anyway, it's that kid, but grown up essentially. But that, that would no. That's a joke. Uh, the other ones I wrote down were Shawshank Redemption two. Essentially, movies that shouldn't have sequels. <laughs> Titanic two. But which there was a- there was that trailer on the internet, which I thought was like that's the perfect. They unfreeze him out of the eye. It's essentially Captain America, but with Jack from Titanic, where he's like <laughs> from the from the past, and he's got to adjust the future but back to the future actually was one that i came up with where like like they play on marty actually having like a disease from use from time travel like it took a toll on his body so they like that's how they interpret the parkinson's and then like doc is losing his mind and he's got to like go find him that would be an interesting uh like dark angle for back to the future for dark and gritty back to the future yeah man like it's like time like the future wasn't the future they thought it would be because time travel altered their mind state in their bodies yeah and biff actually became president what do there you was know? actually stakes to time travel yeah yeah mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. it's profound how about you i actually went with black klansman okay mm. largely because i just thoroughly enjoyed the first one i would like to see that story continue plus i'm pretty sure there's still racism in america so we've got some work to do <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely I second. Yeah, I'd say I'd rather see that play out in the news almost. Than, you watch it in the news free. Yeah, right. right. But I want it cinematic for sure. That was that was a great movie. I don't know how that didn't win. To be honest, that was the largest travesty. upset of yeah, it's travesty. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The final question being, what intellectual property do you think should be adapted to film, and why? So I want to really quickly take a step back and define intellectual property. What, what when you say intellectual property? I mean, it could really be anything. It could be a box of cereal, a game from the back of the box, a video game, a movie, or I guess, yeah, I guess, uh, no, not not a movie, I guess, a TV show, maybe. Like if something got canceled, like Jericho got canceled, if you want to see a, Jer- a Jericho movie, uh, <laughs> if you want to see Better Off Ted as a movie, or you want to see uh, any... Or even bo- like a reimagining, I guess, if you like took something maybe and wanted to see okay. it yeah, yeah. Like in a different light. I just wanted to make sure we we're all talking about the same intellectual property, because that, that's kind of what I interpret as any sort of brand or something that exists, right? Yeah, and if so you odd to make a Pepsi Man movie, you could. I will opt out of the <laughs> Pepsi Man movie. Thank you very much for the suggestion. However, comma... Uh, one m- book series, another book series, I kind of stayed on this, this, this train with book series. My actual favorite book series of all time is called The Wheel of Time. 
And interestingly enough, it's currently being adapted into a television series. But I would very much like to see this as a movie. It's 15 novels. 15 novels. I would love to see a 15, actually probably like 20 or 30 movie series based on these novels. That is something that I would love to see. We'll see it in TV. I think it's an Amazon Studios production. Yeah. I just don't trust any of that shit coming from Amazon. Fair. Because it's not that the quality is shaky. It's just that the way that they treat their media, I don't think is good. So basically a study, or not a study, but a report came out saying that they cancel shows after two seasons because it doesn't get new subscribers, right? So what I'm thinking is going to end up happening with this Wheel of Time series is that they're going to do two eight-episode eight seasons God. and then do a third and then stop. I think three eight-episode seasons will get you two-thirds of the way through book one. Yeah. Of the Wheel of Time. And so I worry for that, and I would like to see it adapted into a movie instead. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Because I, I think I'm thinking of the right book. That's the one with uh, Matt, where he gets the knife and he's like all crazy or whatever. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. You're I, a reader? No, I got the audio books. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, this is what I do because I drive a lot for work. Mm. I get audio books, put them on two times speed. And then just drive and listen. Two times? I do 1.25 and I can keep up. Yeah. But are you even listening at 2x? Yeah. I mean, I get a lot of it. It's, depends on what it is in particular and how fast the narrator speaks. So let's say something like, uh, I'm not proud of this, but I got Mark Cuban's book, How to Win at the Sport of Business, which is basically a compilation of all of his blog posts. Oh, and sweet. It's not good. It's not good. Don't. Got all right, so I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this divergence. Do it. The biggest problem that I have, all right, as my roommate walks in, despite the group text, no, just keep it rolling. We're gonna, oh no, we're, I want, I want to continue the recording of this <laughs> there podcast. Has to be a, sh- a public shame. Yeah, the, so there the I was recording, recording this podcast hey, with hello. my friends. Hello, love <laughs> you. Cool shirt. Hello. To be fair, her bedroom is right there. So. No, I'm not mad. She's actually great. I'm, I'm a big fan. I've got two female roommates. I love them both. I actually <laughs> like the dude, too. He's cool. <laughs> All right. And the cats. They're okay. We'll see. Do they shit everywhere? No, never mind. No, We're not going to get into that. Uh, How to Win at the Sport of Business. I got that book, and it's probably one of the worst things that I've ever experienced in my life. It's a compilation of blog posts that aren't necessarily about anything. Mm. I mean, they're allegorical to business, but it's also in the same way that Bobby Hundred's book is written as like an extended flex about his his life. This this serves as the same thing. It's stories that he can spin into like lessons about business, but it's really just like a, Hey, check out this one time I did this one thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's effectively what the entire book it or that, the first half of this. That sounds about. like the book I'm going to write about myself. So <laughs> just go, go easy on the guy, please. <laughs> All you have to do is remember to link it back to something at some point. Deal. <laughs> oh, uh, Bill Gates stole my dates is one of the, it's one of the stories that he tells. And he's like, there are more important things than women is like the lesson of that story. And it's like, oh, okay. This, oh, this, okay. Who's, who's your editor? Yeah, right. I mean, at a certain point, he's one of those people that you can't tell no, right? Mm-hmm. By the time he was Mark Cuban in a position to release a book like that, he had already, he already owned the Mavericks. And- well, his, his humble brag is just like a normal brag. 
you know, like, cause he's a billionaire or whatever. So he's just like, I'm just, you know, his, his level, like billionaires are like dick level people typically. So like for him, he's like, I'm being cool by being like just normal bragging. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm being open and honest with you because I'm telling you this story about how yeah, Bill yeah. Gates stole my dates rather than that time that I got, <laughs> I purchased a bunch of women from Eastern Europe. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the things she, you don't hear. Yeah, that time that I met with Jeffrey Epstein. Just kidding. I don't know if he did that. <laughs> Seems like everyone did over a certain pay grade. So. Yeah, right. That's well, we'll talk. It's about kind that. of like Clue, but with billionaires, it's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So, how about you, Drew? What's what's the movie that or the intellectual property? So, the movie I would really. Um, there's there's a few, but it's mainly for me the the thing that jumped out was like okay if you could pick anything from the catalog if it was like I made a movie that made like two hundred million dollars from twenty from like ten million dollars and so they're like Drew whatever movie you want to make next what whatever it is I would say uh, a movie about Chewbacca and it would be his story before he met Han uh, in the prison which is now canon in the Disney Star Wars verse essentially through this movie Solo he ends up in there in the in a prison in a pit. But how does he get there as an Imperial slave after an uprising with the Wookiees on Kashyyyk, which essentially would be Wookiee Braveheart, um, <laughs> is kind of what we're looking at here. So it would be Chewbacca as the Mel Gibson character on his home planet, um, and then an uprising with, with his old friend, kind of between, if you ever watched episode three, they come in in that, and so it'd be between episode three and Solo, essentially, but with... Chewbacca and mostly done in Wookiee. I'm not sure if subtitles or no subtitles where you just have to kind of determine. There'd I, be can a dro- I can go no subtitles. You'd that. have to have a droid or some sort of intermediary that like speaks English or like maybe a traveling party that lands on Kashyyyk to help free the Wookiees. That's like human humanoids or people who speak normal speak so that they can help like kind of translate. But yeah. So you're saying that it would basically be apocalypto. But with Wookiees. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Apocalypto slash the Patriot slash uh, Braveheart. Oh, jeez. Yes. That's pretty good. But with Wookiees. I think I could get Disney around on that one. And it's like, nobody's thinking of making the solo Chewbacca movie. But this guy over here, you can call me Kathleen Kennedy if you, uh, <laughs> if you listen to this. Yeah, she definitely does. Yes. What's up, Kath? What's good? Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Oh, the other, the like the real one that like actually would be attainable is a book called Dragon Teeth by Michael Crichton. That's actually a really good book that he wrote, um, kind of just before he died, and then was polished up by a different editor. But he was writing it over about thirty years. It's about the Bone Wars, so it's set in the eighteen hundreds. It's a fiction, but it's like a historical fiction. So he writes a lot from a historical angle with real things that happened. The two main characters are the guys who actually fought each other: a Yale professor and then a Penn professor who fought over bones, or Harvard professor, sorry. Um, who fought over bones uh, incessantly uh, and tried to uh, kill each other a couple times uh, in, in real life. And so it's a character who kind of is an intermediary and finds the first fossil of a Tyrannosaurus Rex in uh, the trouble he goes through to try and get that back uh, and how he grows as a person. So it's a really interesting book. But I read that kind of uh, really quickly, really quick read. But it, you can imagine it as a movie pretty quickly or a series. Okay, cool. Okay. Rad. All right. Yeah, I'd watch that. It would be a pretty good comedy. Yeah, it would be something like uh, what's that? Good and evil on Amazon, mm. but it, it? it's a western that's not about like just typical western stuff. You know, there's like actually a more heady scientific thought to it in terms of like paleontology in the old west and kind of what you used to literally had to battle through all the stuff that you would in the old west with Indian tribes and um, like unlawful towns essentially. But you have to go through it with bones instead. 
um, because they're of some value, but they're not really of any value to people in the West. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. That's pretty dope. Oh. Yeah. All right. Radical. So <laughs> after the after the jump, we'll get into our review of My Blue Heaven. 1990s My Blue Heaven. <laughs> yes. And we'll be right back. Good news. We've brought back RNH in a limited way. It's on our Patreon, patreon.com slash no concessions. On the Patreon, it's called The Old Show, and it's exactly that, The Old Show. Me and someone else sit and shoot the shit for about an hour. This is like when Coke retired its original formula and brought it back at a later date. That's exactly what we've done here. That means that there's only going to be one more episode of Who Knew, the Doctor Who recap show. Oh no, I finally found a way to stop doing that show doctor who sucks as it turns out who knew the old show is available to five dollar patrons patreon.com slash no concessions this week's review is my blue heaven directed by herbert ross produced by herbert ross and anthea silbert written by nora efron Starring Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, and Joan Cusack. Music by Ira Newborn. Cinematography by John Bailey. Edited by Robert M. Rotano and Stephen A. Rotter. It was released on August 17th, 1990. The runtime of this film is 95 minutes. And its box office was $23.6 million with no budget listed. Alright, so let's get into this movie. It's... You wanted to talk about... Yeah. What's interesting is that Goldie Hawn was actually a producer on this as well. So you have kind of multiple producers that are um, kind of uh, interesting from like a comedy standpoint. So you can see her putting her stamp on this or like a movie she could have probably played a role in at some point. As, as a script, she probably optioned for herself and then left off and ended, ended up producing instead of not starring in which is probably why she was attached. And then you have um, essentially both uh, Rick Moranis and Steve Martin starring in this like right after Parenthood together, which kind of played a role based on the fact that uh, originally, from a casting standpoint, Steve Martin was supposed to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, apparently, oh, really? when they first cast this film. <laughs> Good grief. Arnold and so Rick Moranis, was not, Rick Moranis was one of the choices for the role he, that he ended up playing, but Steve Martin was originally supposed to play that role of the FBI agent. And then Barney Cooper Smith, and then Vinny was supposed to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Could you imagine him as I'm a boy from New York? I'm a gangster. No. Oh, what did no. he pass on this for? Twins? I I think this was pre-twins because the other are post-twins because I think Twins was in the in the late '80s, right? Or was it was it '91? So anyway, because Danny DeVito also was was brought up for the role as well for Vinny, so Danny DeVito could have also played that role, maybe better in some ways for sure than Arnold because he's actually believable from New York because he's from New York but that would have also been a very different movie if it was Danny DeVito versus uh, Steve Martin who ended up playing the role yeah I and mean, so so he pulled in Rick Moranis because they were post-parenthood and was like hey we don't have anybody else in this and ended up pulling Steve they, they convinced him that the two of them together could play the roles this movie uh, god damn <laughs> So I, I am I to understand this correctly? This well, is one of your so the faves? other the other table so the other table setting for this is that Nora Ephron is the writer of this. So Nora Ephron's written a lot of sappy kind of romantic comedies over the years. You've got male, um, you know, a lot of critically some critically acclaimed stuff, some stuff that's just like kind of fun stuff, but mostly good stuff. People generally think she's a pretty good writer. Uh, her husband 
is actually Nicholas Pileggi. Pileggi? I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, but he wrote Goodfellas. And so essentially, they were both writing, reading up a ton on Henry Hill, the gangster who went into witness protection. And so both of them simultaneously wrote screenplays out of it. One was Goodfellas, and then one was this. <laughs> <laughs> so the funniest part is Henry Hill is like, oh he, I think he's like somewhat appraising of Goodfellas, like he likes Goodfellas, but this he's very much so in the vein of like, I'm not happy that they made that movie and attached me somewhat to it in terms of my legacy, because <laughs> it's, it's essentially like a joke of his life. So I've got a few like soft spots for this movie, but I'm very aware of the fact that it's like a joke. I described it in the text, you guys, as like the perfect like B minus movie or C plus movie, where it's like not bad enough to where like you hate it for being bad but like there's not enough to wow you to where you're like you don't walk away going like that changed my life entirely you're like i don't i don't know what happened it was just a complete like measure of like mediocrity essentially is what comes out of this because you have a lot of talented people going into it essentially the director also was a guy who started uh in the 40s and 50s directing stuff as a choreographer and then a director on stage and elsewhere and so he kind of built his repertoire that way but he's a he's semi-talented director directed some good stuff over the years so him herbert ross you know also had some quality to him so everybody had quality here but they're all just kind of like you know taking a vacation in san diego and making a movie essentially but i think it's kind of fun okay all right fair enough i will say so there's a couple of things that i wanted to ask you guys just kind of off the bat in terms of um yeah throwing it back at you to kind of summarize i guess would which would be like is this the whitest movie ever made Doug, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. <laughs> I counted I counted the last time I watched it, and I was like, is there anyone who's not a white person on screen ever in the film? And there is one in the stadium scene, clearly seen as an extra right in the row in front of him, who's a man of Hispanic descent, most likely. But other than that, <laughs> most, <laughs> likely. Most, most likely. Oh, jeez. Just it's based just on somebody who's... They're, they're in San Diego at that point, so he's probably just a crowd extra. But, like, yeah. Nobody cast in the film directly, and they filmed it mostly in San Luis Obispo as well as in San Diego, but it is a sign of the times in terms of who it was written for and marketed to. It's, it's the whitest movie maybe ever made. So I've got a lot of problems with this movie. <laughs> let's break them down. Let's get uh, it. So let's jump into it. Yeah, so I guess to summarize quickly, yeah. the movie is about a gangster who goes into witness protection and he's got an FBI attache that follows him around Great trying word. to keep him out of uh, trouble, more or less. Mm. But he's ineffectual because, of course, the paisan from new york is just too charming his hmm. charming self can't be batted away he's a real so smooth he, talker he gets away with doing all sorts of illegal things and he says what me i'm i'm just a vinnie over here come on this the is, guys this is where like again this is made in a vacuum of like just complete whiteness i think where it's just like hey it's no no way this can be bad because it's no one's getting hurt in these crimes so i'm just committing crimes all over the place mm. and nobody they're just minor crimes so nobody yeah. cares. It's the movie's just about a, a dude and his hijinks, and it ends with him like losing all the money that he planned on embezzling. Perhaps you could also say that there's a button ending there where everything comes together. Yeah, but I, I thought he really reformed over the time, and that, absolutely they, not. No, come on, man. They absolutely. named the park after him. He named the park after himself. Look, man, that's reformation <laughs> if I've ever seen it. <laughs> so okay. All right, I guess a quick summary of like what happens in the last like 20 minutes is Vinny, after committing a bunch of crimes, decides he finds other mobsters are living on the outskirts of San Diego in this like town called Freiburg. And they decide like, hey, instead of being straight, we're going to 
commit more crimes together because we've got an entire crime family full of snitches here. And you would think that he would recoil from the idea because they're all snitches. So if they get caught, they're all going to tell on each other. Instantly. Essentially, yeah. And... I mean, like, I understand the in besides irony. besides the illogical fact that the FBI would never send all of the same criminals from New York to the exact same suburb in San Diego. And why is there a cop or an FBI agent from San Diego even handling this case? Well, essentially, it would be in like I imagine like either like Ramona or Poway or like somewhere like kind of North County ish. So it's it's within their offices, field offices, jurisdiction. But it would be the officers from New York who initially arrested him who would be taking him to the court trial. It would actually be the U.S. Marshals who would technically be handling the case, so the You're FBI right. wouldn't even be involved. Okay. So that's Sorry. where, again, like if you really want to break it down, this is really loosely written by Nora Ephron <laughs> here in terms of... They just didn't do any research. This is such a hallmark of movies of this time. Essentially, Where yeah. they just don't do research on how any of this shit works. And they, you have a movie like Black Rain, where two NYPD officers are flown to Japan <laughs> to escort a criminal, rather than the U.S. Marshals, rather than the FBI... Yes. It's so crazy to me. It doesn't make any sense. It's like snakes on a plane. You just kind of have to jump in in the first five minutes and be in or you're out. You know, it's kind of one of those things where like most movies from the late 80s, early 90s, like I would say the early 90s is kind of like uh, there's some good Peak. stuff in there. Yeah. But from it's there, there's a like believability factor, like with like Captain Ron or like whatever, like some of these movies where you're just like, why wouldn't they just throw him off the boat or, you know, like. You had to just jump in with, like, Uncle Buck or whatever, you know, like, hey, this character is, a, uh, without the movie, this character makes no, like, right. there's no reason to watch without this character, but we have to just believe that he's charming. And to me, I look at it, here's the reason why I love this movie, is that I do want to adapt it to a musical, because I think it adapts, it is more a stage play at times than it is a film. And, like, you watch it, and you're just like, who are they playing to? Like, they're playing to an audience, but there's no audience, it's just a camera. <laughs> And it's not How about creative expression. And so I, for me, I bought in this movie straight away. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's it, all you had. You had me at it's shot in San Diego, even partially. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I had such a big sort of, uh, I guess, kick or just had so much fun, like kind of eyeballing. Oh, that's I've been to the Hotel Dell. I've, I see those columns over there at Jack Murphy Stadium where you're playing Padres baseball. Like that for me was was at least like the hook that got me to buy in. Yeah. Like there is a lot that is wrong and like you wouldn't necessarily find in the real world that you do find in this movie but fuck it it's a movie right like yeah absolutely mm-hmm. that's not where my problems end though All so right. let's, let's jump let's go like kind of see i've got a breakdown where we can kind of go scene by scene Uh-oh. yeah okay and, like, the most you can prepared really... <laughs> anyone's ever been for this podcast <laughs> ever all right let's go i had some time this week i'm <laughs> i'm bored i'm bored with my job i'll just say that much nobody from my work's gonna listen to this so i'm not very <laughs> until they do until they do in I which mean, case they probably already know this so i mean they don't i don't know it how also to doesn't take much to just like leave it on in the background while i work from home and take notes so that's what i did this week yeah you're welcome. You're welcome, listeners, for this preparedness. Exactly. So we can we can have a nice, well thought out thesis here. So we start off the first scene. First of all, there's callback titles. So I will say, like this movie is kind of a throwback in some ways, right? Like that's also part of the premise. You have to like buy into the fact that kind of being made by a dude who started making movies in the 40s and 50s, like with some of the titles. And they obviously wanted that throwback with uh, the scene titles, right? Where it's Vinny writes a scene title, and we don't know that in the beginning. Essentially, it's just a third person saying like, "My life begins in the country," and you're like, "Who's this guy?" And then you end up meeting. The guy, but how did you feel about callback titles? I thought it was a nice touch, actually. Yeah, it's like something you don't see a lot. I really dug the art as well. Mm -hmm. Like, the paintings and all that were really nice. It was great. Like, it was a great touch. Yeah, the the title sequence is fantastic. It sets you up for, like, 
a not great opening scene, but they it's a necessary opening scene from a device standpoint of getting them into the house and getting them into the neighborhood. So essentially we land in Freiburg in a suburb that's being half constructed, a neighborhood where most of us growing up in Southern California have been to at some point or another in our lives, where it was expansion and, you know, empty houses with, you know, swimming pools and stuff that you, you know, used to go skin your knees up on. And, uh, and this one, there happens to be a horse. This is early nineties expansion. So before any of us were pretty much, uh, able to remember maybe some of the stuff, but I know myself, like there was definitely neighborhoods where there just, the dirt would end and it would just be like dirt from there outside the neighborhood. So it kind of reminded me of that, but it was not a, not a amazing opening scene. We don't really get a sense of who the characters are, but was like Steve Martin. Here's the biggest question. It was, he believe it. I think this is where you jump in or you don't. Did you buy Steve Martin right off the top as like, he's a gangster or are you like, it's Steve Martin with a weird haircut. Ah, uh, dude, the, my first impression was, Steve Martin is terrible at this. He's <laughs> so bad at this accent. He's not. I'm not buying into this character. At and it all. wavers throughout the movie. There's more times where it's like this, and times where it's like this down here, like almost Wisconsin. But like other times, it's more. Uh, you know, it's yeah. It kind of wavers a little bit. But like yeah. off the bat, you were definitely like, no, DK, were you in or? It took me four times before I actually started. Like, like, <laughs> like I, how I, was I, he I, talking? I started like, it, and then I got. I was like, oh, I mean, I, I can't do this right now. I'm gonna go do something else. By the time I actually got into it, I was like, all right, well, fuck it. This is the movie. I've got like six hours until we're recording. I watched it earlier today. Like, let's finish this, right? So I powered through, but did I buy the character? I just run with it. I just ran with it. I just went with it. You're like, okay, so this is who Steve Martin is in this movie, but he was not anything besides Steve Martin. And then were you like, that's the guy from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Or were you like... Dude, nah, who's, who's Rick this guy? Moranis is sick as fuck. I respect I did, the I shit did out like of Rick. this dude. Rick career. Moranis holds this movie together. He's the glue of the movie for sure. And yeah. to me, like the most redeemable and best character in the movie. Vinny's fun and drives the movie. But what I love about it is that Barney's almost the better character oh, significantly. in the film. I would argue, grant, like, granted, I've watched a lot of cartoons in my life. Steve Martin's character in this movie, Vinny, is just a character like Roger, a character like Cartman, yeah. uh, Roger from American Dad, or Stewie in uh, Family Guy. He's just the, I think the trope on TV tropes is karma chameleon. Yeah. Because he can do whatever the fuck he wants throughout the movie. Conscientious commentator, essentially. essentially yeah. No. No, you mean like he's more of the... He does whatever he wants and there are no consequences yeah. for him. Is so that what you mean? I mean, like, he knows that he can do whatever he wants and he can comment on anything and nobody's going to, like, say anything to him about it. Yeah. 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 I, and that type of character to me is so tired because I did grow up watching South Park. Oh, totally. And Family Guy and all those shows. And, like, having somebody in a movie where they, like, kind of drive the story in a way. But the movie, the movie, I feel like focuses too much on Vinny and not enough on Barry because yeah. the movie's not necessarily about Vinny. It's just full of his antics. Like he's he's like Dennis the Menace, basically. Like th- always th- up to no good, just fucking mischievous as all hell. But at the same time, to your point, just like oh, you know, I just did a thing. Like it's fine. I'm, yeah, I'm a Vinny. Light, I just do it. Why are you taking life so seriously? Come on. Yeah, I Arugula. do what I want. You, you it's people out vegetable. here in the sticks <laughs> in San Diego don't know don't know nothing about this New York life. So in some way, the, so there's a couple other approaches we'll get to, but one of which I think is like the conscientious. Like he's not conscientious. He's uh, the the actual uh, early '90s hate against suburbia that was like happening with uh, some Steve Martin films, which is 
funny because he grew up in Orange County, but like, um, what was it? The Burbs was another movie he did that was kind of like, kind of how like the suburbs sucks and like is kind of sadistic in its own way. So it's kind of funny how it like almost t- touches on like urbanist notes in 1990 in a weird backwards way that it didn't even plan on was like, hey, you people out in the suburbs are all wacky, but it doesn't even play into any of that, right? It's just like fish out of water more so than anything else, whereas it could go in the angle of like, Oh, maybe he could teach them about the city, and they can teach him about the suburb. But that, that never happens. No, it's just so you're, him consciously or unconsciously subverting every person who lives out yeah. in the in the sticks. But when they drop you there instantly, you almost think that you think like maybe it'll be more of this, like oh, suburban comedy with like the because the wife leaving, she's just like I can't be here, I got to be in the city. So you think that's what the movie's about, right? Like you're like kicking off, and you're like okay, maybe it's about this, right? And so from there, it jumps into. Uh, Barney's wife leaving, right? So then we go back to Barney, and Barney uh, leaves his office. So we go to San Diego, and we go to downtown to the uh, old FBI building, which still looks pretty much the same. That part of downtown, you're just like, oh, that just looks like what that looks like now with an older trolley. Yeah. And then he gets on the Coronado Bridge, and then he drives to uh, Ocean Beach and Sunset Cliffs. I, I, I was like, <laughs> so where exactly are we? So again? if you live locally, the joke here is that he drives to an island that is that is he would have to drive back across the bridge and then drive the complete opposite direction to get to where the house that he ends up going to is. Yeah. But it was fun to see sun, Sunset Cliffs get some uh, get some shine. Yeah, get a little screen time on probably what I don't think is an actual road. I think it's just like a sub road and. And their actual mailbox would probably be off like a another access way, is my guess. But they put a nice mailbox there for cinematic effect off a trailway. Yeah, yeah. So he gets left by his wife by pitcher. That was a very interesting scene where it also sets up a a quote which I thought would be at play throughout the movie that is not, but is that uh, he has a system for everything. So you like think you're going to see him having systems, right? Where she's like, he's got a system for everything. You're like, oh, I can't wait Pancakes, to see his systems, yeah. right? Like. Oh, I can't, wait. Systems. I can't wait until Vinny and him butt heads over the systems that he's created for his life. And in reality, there are no systems. This movie just feels like, you know how Adam Sandler just releases movies to release yeah. movies? At this point, yeah, Netflix was just like, make movies. And he's like, okay, sure. Yeah. yeah. And same with uh, Prince of Darkness by John Romero. I haven't seen that one. It's not particularly good. It's one of the episodes that we had covered. But the problem in particular with this is it feels like it's a movie that they made while waiting to do something else. Mm. And that's, yeah, it's kind of like after Parenthood, they're both like, what are you working on? Well, I'm doing this thing, and Arnold Schwarzenegger dropped out, so you want to play the FBI agent, and I'll be the other guy? Okay, well, it's a pretty good script. It's Efron, and Hans producing, and yeah, we got this, we got Herbert Ross directing. Let's, let's roll. I mean, define pretty good script, because I this think is they, not they, it. Well, because I think what I they chuckled. had initially was a few decent liners and they're like, we'll punch it up, right? Like, well, we'll make it better. And they just never made it better. So I think like that's, if you see a script before you go to shooting, a lot of the time it can be really good. Sometimes it's not great and it ends up pretty good. So it depends on who touches it and what they do with it. Yeah. And in this case, I think, yeah, there was just maybe like a hot potato of like, Oh, somebody's going to do that at some point And nobody did. So I, on, on your point about you got a chuckle out of this movie, I literally only laughed once during this movie, which what scene was it? It was the end where he was explaining his Christmas day <laughs> where he was like, and I came downstairs and my uncle Fagul or whatever the mm. fuck his name is. He's dead on the floor Here with a 22 <laughs> and there was no bike. <laughs> And I was just like, oh, that's what this movie should have been the whole time. <laughs> like, this is him telling, like, terrible stories to like children. That, that's a, yeah, that's a generally funny, uncomfortable moment. And, like, you wish, like, because everything gets kind of uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable for the other person. It's never, like, like genuinely uncomfortable, right? It's, like, uncomfortable because she's such a tight ass. 
like DA in a lot of those scenes, but like it's not really uncomfortable because you're like, oh, that's a terrible thing to say to another person. Like versus, yeah, that's funny in that scene. So I get that. Yeah, and also I'm granted it's been a long time since I've watched like kind of a comedy movie from this era and like the way that they portray the women in this movie oh, is and that's, so that's the other thing that I think is interesting weird yeah, yeah. they're like highly incompetent and super horny and it's like dude like every every <laughs> which, opportunity they which get. again to bring up Herbert Ross is known for directing women I think he directed Working Girl and something else so he's directed movies that are like known for like feminine feminine characters that are like actually and there's another one with uh, whichever one had Julia Roberts that like launched her career um but yeah, he's he's known for directing like female driven casts and like knows how to do it. And then Nora Ephron similarly knows how to write like female characters. So yeah, it's really weird that it ends up being like essentially every woman. Uh, number one, Vinny is shows no remorse about three wives throughout the film that he has, and then uh, it's all, honestly a joke in the end. Redheads. Yeah, where they all end up in the same place. But it's yeah, it's kind of interesting how they just kind of toss women into the plot. The you think that uh, Joan Cusack? So jumping ahead to. Uh, the next kind of character introduction being Joan Cusack's character. The first time he gets into trouble doing something stupid at the uh, grocery store with the uh, kind of stolen merchandise via the the tape gun. Has anybody ever stolen anything from a grocery store? Yes, when I was a child. But it wasn't... Was it out of the gummy worms and stuff? No, no. That's what I would... I would just like steal like a gummy worm here or there. Yeah. Yeah. Candy. Self-checkout, man. It was a great thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he got in trouble for stealing a car after that scene yes so they don't show you what the more interesting of the scenes is no yeah like they show they show him running into the da and her being like you stole a car and liquor so yeah and we never saw that yeah yeah and it's just like okay cool and then barney comes in and subverts her authority and it's just like uh, that's not how that would work. Well, yeah, and like, they set her up to be an interesting character, right? They like set her. You're like at first, you're like, oh, okay, Joan Cusack's in this. We're, let's go. All right, let's. What's she gonna do? You know what? It's interesting that you say that. It's this movie is full of interesting setups, but no payoffs or yeah. very few payoffs. Well, again, I think like they wrote these like they had the, all these good hooks, and they're like, okay, we got all these good hooks, but like we'll write the really good verses later, and like <laughs> they like never wrote good verses. Like they just didn't write any good verses, and the chorus just wasn't there essentially enough with one character kind of doing one note as you said like and then one character evolving throughout the film which is like again if you buy into the story and you buy into it you kind of ride barney's story i think a little bit more initially off the bat because Vinny, you're just like oh well he's just kind of he's already going through a purse they established off the bat that like he's not a great guy and that barney's like a guy who just kind of can't catch a break yeah barney can't catch a break his wife is leaving him for a baseball player who's 26 who has no future in wichita so like he's definitely getting like the worst break of like he had he had nothing to do with it because he has a system for pancakes. That's like his fault for being too dependable, you know. Yeah. Like, don't women want that? They want you know some variability, but dependability, you know. It's it's the long time trope that nice guys finish last. Essentially, yeah. It's oh, you were too good to me. You need to be like Vinny, a huge piece of shit, in order to get women. And that's kind of the lesson that's in this movie. Vinny is a huge piece of shit throughout the entire film and he gets everything that he wants mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. Every, n- at, not at one point is he ever stopped and like oh you know what dude you have to actually have consequences for even this. when he's in jail he opens his own cell to make his own phone calls and use the nice lavatory in the office it's just like he at- doesn't play by anybody else's rules he plays by his own rules for sure he is a he's above society and that way yeah that's what's kind of interesting too in our personal climate of like personal accountability where we're all mad at a certain person who isn't accountable to anybody apparently like i think there's 
there's also an air right now of watching this where you're just like mad at this like essentially and that's why i'm saying like is it the whitest movie ever because it's just essentially white privilege in the form of this gangster who's like i could just do whatever i want and there's no consequences because i have this thing that just rides over and in this case it's his witness protection but like this just rides over everything diplomatic immunity has been used similarly in other films right yes and that's not how that works either no right so like it's the same sort of like trope or concept that's like definitely played up a little bit now if it were billionaires i guess uh lethal it was lethal weapon three right with the yeah, gold yeah. cougarans no, it was two. My bad. So in Lethal Weapon 2 with the gold Krugerrands, that guy would have been a billionaire, so he would have been able to get away with whatever he wanted anyway. But diplomatic immunity does not work like that. Diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity. Oh, yeah. I can just openly commit crimes in another country. That's, yep. Yeah. <laughs> diplomatic immunity, baby. Witness protection just makes it to where you can just, yeah, do whatever you want in the community, and there's no consequences, and there's, yeah, there's... No, yeah, issue. they wouldn't move him after that either. So that's like the other stuff where you're like, he would instantly be moved or instantly whatever. So it's kind of funny. But then the other thing they do with Junk is like they take her home and then she starts talking to her kids. So then we find out she's a divorced mom, she's got two kids, and it picks up with her like having a real moment with her kids at home about like being divorced and like that's the other reason why you like buy into her character. So like again, they write in for her and then they never give her like any sort of like come back like payoff and even then they she needs so we'll get further on but like she needs rick moranis to fight her battles for her with her ex-husband played by daniel stern um of uh, home alone fame this is pre-home alone daniel stern from the wet bandits um also from rookie of the year which i would put in a similar vein to this film of just like sheer ridiculousness um you just kind of have to buy into so but there's that and then there's essentially her with the uh the turtle moment where she kills her kid's turtle and that's why they end up going to the strip mall again and meeting up with Vinny where they spin off that part. But what did you do? Have you ever had a parent kill a pet or kill anything that was close to you? No, my parents never killed my pet, but I do remember one day when I went to a baseball game, actually as a kid, I came home. We took the, like the long way home. I remember like my dad was driving. We took the long way home. And as I'm coming home, I see this truck pulling out of my driveway. And this is like, late 90s maybe like 1999 i was about 10 years old we had a dog named spot he was a bit of a problem but i loved him and when i got home i was like oh where's spot this truck that had pulled out had like you know one of those net things on the back and i was like wait a minute like is my dog gone like did my pen like (laughs) they were stalling for time while they got rid of my dog they called the guy on my dog and he was gone oh And and i've never seen spot since so i no one killed him but they definitely he was took disappeared. Him away. He just, yeah. he just, they haven't, oh, I haven't man. seen him since. He That's was rough. Like, they took him to Guantanamo. I'm telling you, where, where, where the pets go. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Mine was, yeah, mine's less bad. Mine would be just like a Tamagotchi my mom had once that was up to like 16 days of keeping alive back when that was a thing. Like okay. Tamagotchi was in its heyday. I was in like third grade or fourth grade. And uh, it was like, yeah, two weeks old. Gave it to her for a day. Didn't even make it like a half a day, apparently. No more Tamagotchi. R.I.P. Vinny, we fast forward to uh, she kills the turtle. We we go to the pet shop where he finds the old uh, uh, guy that you've seen in a bunch of movies as a gangster or just like a general riffraff New York guy uh, who's uh, running the pet shop. And they have a moment. And then from there, we kick off the crime spree scene, which, again, we've kind of broken down was not very like logistic. But you, you did you see this turn coming at all? when he went to the pet store. By the time he got to the pet store, was this like on your logistical line of plots? This is what I think is weird. Is again, they set up a lot of things they never pay off, but like the plot also just goes in weird directions. Like it meanders because all of a sudden it's like, oh, I know a, a parrot. He, he used to say this thing, this thing. And that was like the keyword. And I was like, wait, like, where are we going? Like, I, 
I buckled up and I just ran with it. But like he said, like I did, did I see that coming? No, no, yeah, not at all. This movie, I did, well, I guess to answer your question immediately, no, I didn't see it coming. But that's probably because this movie is so confused at what it is. Exactly. Yeah, it seems to change every few minutes. So even now, like we have to see the movie playing in the background, and at one point, it the movie purports to be like showing Rick Moranis how to love again and like how to get girls. It's like uh, there's like a dance sequence in it too. Oh, it's fantastic, the merengue. Yeah, it's, it's perfect for a musical. Okay, like I, I, you're more and more convincing me that oh, this should 100%. be a musical. It, 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 yeah, even it is with a musical. Like the hook and verse. Like it's, it's totally like, a musical, a hundred percent. It just doesn't know what it is because <laughs> it makes more sense. Musicals don't make sense. They take like ridiculous left turns that you don't see coming for the sake of like, hey, how do we get more people on stage? Right? Like that's why a lot of them were written sometimes the way that they were. But like in this case, there's no logistical way why it was written the way that it was written. Like mainly just to like even going back to New York here, it's like they go to a suit store and they go to a dance hall and then they go to a trial and that's pretty much it. So it's like kind of these weird compartmentalized scenes that don't really like flow together unless you follow the character arc of like, yeah, he's trying to teach Barney how to love again. And that's kind of like where it kicks off after the crime wave is like, okay, so the movie goes into crime wave and you're like, okay, so this is a law and order thing. And they're like, got to shut all these guys down. And then no, it doesn't really go anywhere with that. It's more so just like, okay, they caught us. So now he goes back to New York for a trial. And that's, that's pretty much where it picks up with what we're talking about here with the dance scene and, uh, Barney has to buy a suit and then he kind of gives Barney the slip a couple times and they end up doing a night at the Roxbury style dance party, um, which I felt was like very, uh, there was a couple scenes that were almost like lifted out of night at the Roxbury and, and there, did you ever see night at the Roxbury? I've no. seen oh. as a fellow DK as I would say it's a, yeah, it's a movie that was written around two characters again that maybe wasn't really fully thought through, but is dumb, funny again in my vein. But for you, you kind of more strike me as a person who thinks that you would like a more intellectual comedy. Uh, not not necessarily. I'm not above like really dumb stuff. It's just that this movie, the comedy in this movie isn't particular. Like it's not hidden for me. I yeah. guess is the best way. It's to- silly. It's not. Yeah. It's not like. Uh, I, I wouldn't even say that it's like too silly for me or anything like that. I just don't think there are that many jokes in it. It's. I think they're jokes. I think they're just like '90s, like like pre stand up becoming more uh, about situational humor, mm-hmm. and like back when they was like punchline jokes, where it's more like here's a thing that sounds weird in the mouth. Like they're oh, all okay. trying to be like lines on a t shirt almost, right? Like oh yeah, I feel my like wife it's is like, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yeah, yeah. like like arugula, it's a vegetable, could be on a t shirt. Yeah, right? like that's yeah. something you could put it's on. A Damn, is that supposed to be a joke? Yeah, is right. That, like you would say that's that's like that would be the style of humor. But it's also again like written by somebody who like wrote romantic comedies versus comedies in the form of Nora Ephron. So like most of her humor is more in that vein than it would be it's in like, the it's not actually it's like it's like soft humor. It's it's I don't even know how to phrase this. It's not jokes to tell jokes. It's, it's situational, and it's like I think they they did try to build it into this is just a very awkward and uncomfortable movie with a lot of people who like you never want to grow up to be, but like those people exist in the world. That's kind of how I read it, where it's like I laughed at the fact that I'm not them. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I had to be anybody in this movie, it would be Joan Cusack. She's got two kids, bum bum ex husband, yeah. but she's also the DA, so she's getting fucking paid. Yeah. She's got a banging ass house. 
Yeah, it's a pretty nice house. Great yeah. shoulders too. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, this is the '90s. We can't tell if those are shoulder pads. So let's go back. Let's go back to June Key. So let's get out of New York. New York is kind of a nothing kind of throwaway interview. And I think like this is where the middle of the musical would be is that dance number, and then they would cut um, post uh, dance number would be the ending would would be the shooting where he saves Barney saves uh, the life of Vinny, and Vinny says I didn't know how to shoot a gun, which is one of the many lies he tells throughout the film that we fu- we come to find out, but. Uh, then it goes back to the then it goes to the trial. They do a trial and then they fly home. For me, it would be the trial uh, would probably either be the opening of the second act, most likely in this case. So yeah. just to give you an idea of where my head's at with this musical <laughs> plot here, <laughs> opening of the second act. Yeah, I yeah. did. I did actually really dig the part about uh, oh, when he was being questioned in the court. Yeah, like yeah. some of those scenes are great, like where he's actually like having to answer to his crimes. It's interesting, I think. Yeah, it's it's a side of the character that doesn't exist in the rest of the movie. No, he's, it's almost like he's trying to escape that version of himself the entire movie, but we don't see enough of it. It's only like three points in the movie, and it's only like a minute and a half each that we actually like see that version of him. So. Yeah. Throughout the rest of the movie, which is pretty much every other scene, he's just being this like carefree, like I don't give a shit yeah. about anything. So I, I will say that yeah, it doesn't give him. I think they like either cut scenes there, or it just feels like there's not enough of that to weight his character's absurdity to make you almost like feel like oh yeah, it's okay that he's absurd because he's got this other heavy shit going on. To I guess jump towards the end of the movie, the portion that I brought up in the beginning where he builds the ballpark and names it after himself. That part, I didn't feel like... The reason why I believe that he's lying is because I don't feel like the honesty is earned. Mm -hmm. Because the character doesn't go through any transformation up to that point where it would lead me to believe, like, oh, he's changed. Because literally, like, maybe five or so minutes before that, he's talking about, like, oh, you know what? I've got another crime that we can do where you guys see a problem. I see a solution and he goes around and he starts raising money for the Freiburg, uh, turtles, turtles. They're literally they actually not team. called the turtles. I think he names them the turtles in the end as part of a button on every single line in that last scene, which we'll get to, which I do think like, as you said, they don't give you payoff, but they do wrap everything up weirdly in that last scene. If you notice it, you just kind of have to like look for it and again, watch it a stupid amount of times that nobody ever should watch this movie, <laughs> but we'll get, we'll get there. So, so let's dial it back. So yeah, that essentially he never redeems himself, but let's go, back to the uh, they come back from new york on the plane they get to uh essentially the assistant da gets tickets to go to a baseball game to deliver to her house she doesn't have any idea why so her and her kids are preparing to go to a padres baseball game padres must have paid for product placement in here because they are all over this movie either that or they were just a proxy for the city because the kids are wearing like padres pins in the first scene and then they like in this are they actually go to jack murphy and like show up at the padres so Vinny shows up at their house. Surprise. I've arranged for you guys to go to the Padres game. I gave you the tickets. I also brought a limo as well. So now you can't say no in front of your kids. Forces the DA to go to a, a Padres game, which is highly unethical and never would have been done as well. But they end up at the Padres game at Barney's there as well. That brought back a lot of nostalgia for me. DK was kind of talking about like that scene specifically. is kind of like a stadium that we've gone to a few times. That it, they kind of... Seeing it in that light back in its heyday is kind of fun to see, but at the same time, it was also you're also picking apart the crowd and like it must have been an SDSU home game because there's a lot of people wearing like SDSU gear as well that they might have like filmed this at because there wasn't as many people like but they actually filmed in the stadium. A lot of those stadium scenes are like random stadium and then they shoot like exterior somewhere else. What I love the most is is that cut where they show the scoreboard. It's yeah, because it's the, the same, same scoreboard the same that scoreboard. we still have today. That yeah. was like oh. I know that. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. I've been Most there. Most of that stadium looks the same today. Identical, yeah. So yeah. it's a uh, newer than. Yes. <laughs> the, the features are still largely, and the facades are, yes. One yeah, it's the less same. crumbly then. And it actually looked better then because they didn't fill in the, the back half of it, so it didn't look stupid. But even like the causeways where they're all walking down together, and you're like, I've been there like a dozen of times. It's great. For me, it's been like probably a hundred times. But yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of a fun little scene there. There's also a guy behind them that just like in the baseball scene that looks like the like complete 90s like version of Padres Twitter essentially <laughs> like he's just personified he's got the Padres hat he's got the radio in his ear and then oh, he's yeah. got some like bright um, jacket but yeah he's got a he kind of looks like Hacksaw Hamilton as well that actually might be Hacksaw it might even be Hacksaw <laughs> the man himself it's very possible please, some very hammy extras here in this baseball scene please break down for the audience and me who Hacksaw Hamilton is <laughs> He is a longtime radio host here in San Diego for sports radio that at one point was one of the most popular, if not like the most popular radio host in this half of the country. So New York has most of the big radio hosts and sports media came out of there. He was one of the few guys ever to come out of the West Coast and was kind of known from here all the way up uh, to Seattle and everything on just different matters. People just, he would say, react to this, uh, whatever happened, and has a lot of different catchphrases, but is known for his handlebar mustache and... Uh, Kind of, he kind of looks like a walrus a little bit. Nice. Yeah. Shout out Hacksaw Hamilton. Shout out Hacksaw. Shout out local San Diego vibes. So yeah, that's uh, they move on. So everybody kind of bumps into each other and eventually falls in love after this scene. It's very quick, as you said. It's almost just like the women are very willing to. Oh, the second any eligible man steps into my life, boom, forget whatever else I had going on. Yeah, or, my life is all about you now, babe. Let's go to Reno. Essentially, yeah. It's, yeah. And they established that early on with the female police officer and, and Vinny, but it does feel like uh, him having a second wife for no reason is almost like makes no sense. And the second wife that he does take up at or an earlier point in the film is from uh, Kimmy Schmidt. She's the old woman who lives with them uh, in the Carol Kane, who lives with them in the like bungalow, if either of you ever watched Kimmy Schmidt, but she's a main featuring character on that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. The craziest part about when he gets that second wife is I just assumed that that was a trap. Yeah, like from, she, uh, she's a planter. The, yeah, like from the dudes back home. Yeah, who because, were like, like trying to wax him the whole time. Yeah. I was like, oh, that would make sense. Totally. But this movie doesn't make sense. There's literally, that goes nowhere. She, yeah. <laughs> she just like, at the end of the movie, you're like, what happened to her? And they pop her back up. But you're just like, they, they also, if you miss it, if you miss the like five seconds she's on screen at the end, you could just assume like, I have no idea what happened to her. He, she never married him under his real name as they make appearance uh, in, a, in the scene where they get married. But uh, yeah, the, the Hotel Dell is kind of the next point here kind of, of reference locally, I guess, after the stadium in terms of sequentially scenes as well while they fall in love, which was... A nice sequence, uh, but it was also, again, the uh, uh, white people dancing to the merengue, uh, which is a theme throughout the film as well. How did you feel about the dancing I mean, that was, that was fine. To be yeah. honest, like, it, like I caught myself tapping my foot and bobbing my head. And that, I song, feel like that song is very If catchy. I'm somehow out this weekend, I might just try my luck out on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. Okay, so at the end of this stint at the stadium, this is when the idea comes up for... Uh, the the little league stuff because the kids are telling them like yo we don't have shit out here yeah we don't have a place to play or whatever and that's where he generates that idea totally. and that's really as far as the rest of the movie goes that's the last idea that sticks and is followed through with totally because everything else is just kind of like whatever uh-huh. there's 
damn this movie. So there's I'm, a term. There's a term to this as well. And I was raised in a style of like raised, quote unquote. But I went to a film school that prioritized a thing called poetic filmmaking. I think that's also why I like these stupid movies that kind of go nowhere. Um, and I actually hated it in film school, but I do like these stories now because I think plot wise getting people to actually enjoy this kind of story is much more difficult than if you actually make a plot that just threadwise goes all the way through. But it's poetic filmmaking, essentially what they call it, where it doesn't really have a congruent or plot line. Essentially, it's just like, here's a bunch of vignettes or stories that tell you who these people are, and you kind of like roll with it. This does have a button ending, so I don't think that's at all what they were going for, but that's kind of where, like for me personally, I still enjoy these things even though they don't drive anywhere, which is like totally a valid frustration for anyone watching a movie because it's like your expectation watching a movie is like, it's going to have a beginning, middle, and end, and this movie definitely does not. And a few other of my favorites that I'll bring up kind of like synonymously don't as well that I was thinking about. I was like, that's probably why. Okay. Is that I like kind of these plots that go, but yeah, that is the plot of the movie is that he just raises happens. a bunch of yeah coins essentially in barrels the old kid fundraisers used to see where you would have a a water barrel that you would use for uh, water five uh, gallon jug yeah five gallon jug that fill up with coins and then you Sparklets. would yeah dip into a, a, a coin uh, machine and then you wrap them up and take them in for your fundraiser so that's the kind of the fundraiser and he just has written on there like save the little league right or save the little league fields um and so from there they get to a courtroom scene where he finally does get apprehended um, for this money that they find in his trunk uh, after the DA has kind of broken up with Barney for uh, uh, similar... Basically being friends with the fucking criminal. Basically. Which is completely valid. Well, and also in that in that sequence, Barney goes undercover, right? And they finally yeah. get to go undercover, and his friend doesn't get to drive a BMW, even though it's the high point of his life, who is also an unexplored character that I wanted more from. Especially yeah. after the dance scene, you're like, I want more yeah, of that guy. He's got so much soul. He's awesome. And he's, a, he's a working actor. He's just been a ton of stuff. I was like, what has this guy been in lately? And I'm like, just a ton of stuff, just like CSI, whatever, you know, like just around. But he was, yeah, he was an underrated character as well in the movie, the uh, other FBI agent. Um, Ted, I forget what his name is. They go undercover as Canadians and then they get busted. But Barney, or not Barney, Vinny snitches on them, right? So, like, he literally doesn't change throughout the entire film. Literally, like, the last thing he does to piss the DA off at Barney and then eventually make him her go after Vinny is that he snitches on Barney or snitches on Barney's cover, which was a fence of a Canadian in town to buy a bunch of illegal stuff, right? Yeah, and I have a feeling that's like a reference to Strange Brew. A little bit, like, because it's not Dave Thomas, but the other guy looks like Dave Thomas with Rick Moranis. So, like, it's a little bit of this, like, backdoor Canadian. Like, if it was somebody else, they might have not been Canadian, but because it was Rick Moranis, they were Canadian, which was part of the joke, I guess. But, yeah, so within that, they take him to trial. He gets shot at again in the trial and then they run to a nearby which makes no the, the whole final sequence kind of makes no sense no. They, they get they just somehow end up at a field where he's building a field for the little league <laughs> and it just <laughs> which describes just, the whole movie like there's like, non sequiturs where you're like how do we get from here to here and it doesn't really oh let's run away together yeah uh, take my gun take my badge take my keys take, take me me it's like hey, dude, I would take her those. what are you yeah, guys doing what, what kind of movie are you writing here just pretend I'm your hostage yeah, and then yeah. she's like, oh. Yeah, like, but they've been saying, I think if she was the only character like that, it would be fine. If she was like the only boy crazy cop who's like, you know, just like into bad boys and like he's the ultimate bad boy in Freiburg, essentially, like that would make sense. But they really, yeah, just set it up to where every female character just fell for the most logical puzzle piece that instantly came into their lives versus any sort of rigidity. And they had some back and forth with Barney and the DA, but essentially at the end of the day, you knew they were going to end up together because they're both just like, 
it, you saw it coming from the second he kicks the husband down the stairs and you're like okay well he's the champion now but she never really got her moment back i felt like no and especially once they get to the, the field and then barney or uh, Vinny gives that whole speech my i came downstairs on christmas day to be disappointed i never wanted these kids to be disappointed like me so i built this ballpark for them which with all of my gangster friends operating machinery that i could could have probably put together in the last like hour and a half most yeah, likely we, exactly, we never know we well, never know no i mean like maybe I don't he think was planning it the whole time and that's the mystery for you to decide in your heart do you forgive Vinny, and do you think that he no. was doing it the whole time i mean no i think it's one of those things where i watch a lot of cartoons a lot of anime a lot of like different media but this is this is a common thing right like especially in something that involves bounty hunters for whatever reason i don't know why it's so popular with them but effectively once they come into a big windfall uh, they lose it almost immediately because something happens. Mm. And like to me, his plan, as soon as he thought of like, oh, let's scam these people by like pretending that we're going to build this park, as soon as he got the money, he realizes, oh, fuck, I can't keep this money. So he has to give it back. It's just like in GTA 5, like when you're playing as Michael, like, oh, you think you're out of the life, but you go do something stupid that brings you back in. And you don't really even, I mean, I guess after the first couple heists, uh, you get to keep the money, but effectively, you're paying back somebody the entire game. That's why you're doing the robbery. So you don't think that he was brilliant at, at creating a logistical way to get all of his friends real jobs so that they didn't have to try and rely on government's assistance anymore, and that we should just go around building ballparks, and that's how we'll solve the, the, pro- the jobs problem? Absolutely not. I think this could be a model for America, but that's just, that's just me. <laughs> but that's just me. That's... <laughs> I will say, so the end scene they have, they cut to a full game day at this new stadium in the future where the team name is the Turtles to wrap up the fact that the mom killed the turtle. He's selling his book because earlier in the movie he stole a bunch of books on how to write a book, which he said, uh, why do you need multiple copies of this book? And said, so I can read it multiple times. So that's like a joke, right? But like, it's not really one of those where you go, ha ha. But you're like, oh. <laughs> so it's like that's the that is the humor level of the movie, by the way. So it's yeah, if you like that kind of if you're it's you can watch it with your grandma. That's the good news. So if you do want to sit down with your grandma and watch a movie, like you can watch this movie. Um, and so anyway, there's that. They watch the they're releasing his book that he released through you know after stealing a book on how to write a book, and the whole movie's writing down notes on his philosophy, and it's called That's My Philosophy. His two ex wives show up and they're like, "What's the odds that we have new husbands that get back in the witness protection program?" Which is again the the tone of the tropiness within some of this, and so they really just they do button everything in the end. They do create endings to all of this, but yeah, my ending thought on this is again. I love the fact I was raised with this movie. Essentially, is like, hey, this thing was like shot here in San Diego, like when I was a kid. So I was three years old or two years old, probably when they shot it around town. And so my parents and other people living locally just like showed it to their kids growing up, right? Like, oh, it's a funny thing, and you can show it to your kids, right? It's it's essentially PG thirteen or PG for most of it, except for a couple scenes where he's like in the supermarket and the guys, and I guess that's still PG thirteen, but he's like. Uh, I would say it's almost PG besides that, uh, where he's like, fuck you. He's like, oh, how you doing? He's like, fuck you. Like, stuff like that. But, like, you, essentially the TV edit's probably pretty, like, one or two scenes. That's it. Um, for me, it touches a lot of the notes, but it isn't the same sort of brevity. I like it because San Diego, in a way, is a tough movie to make, or tough town to make a movie about or set in because the city itself is kind of one of those places where as DK knows like nothing happens like feels like everything just kind of goes around in a circle here and then you just kind of end up in the same place like an all is well that ends well kind of thing isn't that perfect for this movie though and and that he got a stadium built he actually got a stadium built in San Diego which is <laughs> like logistically impossible. impossible so like Anchorman to me is similar like Anchorman didn't have a plot they actually wrote a plot for the movie that became a separate film that they pulled out of the movie 
which was about um, a group with Maya Rudolph and a few other people where they're trying to steal stuff from a bank called, and they're called the Alarm Clock, and it's a whole like subplot on uh, '70s radicals and like shitty activists. Um, but yeah, the whole Anchorman movie, if you watch it, the first like two thirds of it has no plot. The plot is like, he's a chauvinist and that's the plot. And then like you get to the second third and it's like, Oh, I guess it's about the Panda. Like that's literally technically the plot, right? Like, and none of that redeems his character at the end, but like, it's the same sort of idea. And so Anchorman being one of my favorite movies of all time, I'd say like this follows a similar pattern in terms of like, I can see why I like that movie based off this movie. Um, but overall, that's kind of my feeling on the movie. Is like again, I love it warts and all for what it is, but I totally acknowledge the fact that it's a weird time capsule of a movie that never would be made today. And I think that it's also like a real, just like bubble again of like the people who made it were just like making it to make it. I don't think they were really conscious of like the story they were telling most of the time. But part of it is just like fun of like they didn't give a shit, you know. Like so, but again, it's like, are you going to spend time watching? Are you one of those people who are like, I'm not going to spend my time watching something? somebody else didn't give a shit about final thoughts final thoughts on this film is like i said being someone who lives in san diego it was just great to kind of see like that scenery i don't see very many movies that are shot and made or even based in san diego so that was cute i thought that was nice i i know derived a certain amount of utility from all that but as far as like was this the kind of thing that i will hold up to like a class and say hey this is like what you really need to do when you're making a movie no i might hold this up as a thing like look here's where you want to avoid like you see what they did here maybe don't do that right but no, honestly, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I chuckled quite a bit. Maybe like I went into it not expecting like an Oscar nominated anything because I don't think it was nominated for anything, right? Yeah. It was it was a feel good filler like hungover kind of like blankets and soup afternoon type of a movie that I would maybe actually watch again if I had someone to like cuddle with and like not really pay attention to the movie itself. Okay, fair enough. I don't think this movie's very good at all. I don't think there's much that redeems it at all. I think this movie (laughs) is generally just whatever. It's it's kind of just like a good background noise movie, and it it's not man. It's just not good. It's just I mean, it's another one of those movies like Prince of Darkness where uh, they have ideas that they want to use, but they just don't implement them in any meaningful way. So the movie just looks like it was made just to be made. It's not anything impressive. And as far as like using San Diego as scenery goes, like I, I do love the city and I'm born and raised here, but like putting it in a movie like this does nothing for me. It's, it's cool to see Jack Murphy stadium because I haven't been there in some years, but, uh, or Qualcomm or SDCCU or whatever it's being called now. But this, this movie is just kind of whatever I would say. Like, I wouldn't, I mean, watch it if you want to. If this is your style of comedy, it's your style of comedy. But like, like if you love Steve Martin or you love Rick Moranis, you should watch this movie. Or, I mean, you don't really get like comedy Rick Moranis. No, but like if you love, if you like, like him and want to watch a movie where he's in like most of the movie, you know, it's, yeah. yeah. If you want Steve Moranis content. So let me, I'll put it to you like this. Uh, This is something that I would watch if like vlogs didn't exist. Where like Gothic King Cobra is just living his life. Never mind. I'm just, that's he's a weird dude. Okay, okay, whatever. So after the break, we'll get into our titular segment, no concessions. A fledgling podcast can't stand up to the podcasting industrial complex without your help. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends who like movies. Help us take down the man and then become him. 
rate, share, and join the Patreon, patreon.com slash no concessions. All right, and we're back with No Concessions, our titular segment where we make a case for our favorite or least favorite movie. So we're doing favorites this time. Let's start with you, Drew. Okay. Um, A movie that I would make a case for, just like Die on a Hill for, essentially? Yes. Okay. Um, Correct. The the Dark Knight or Gladiator. I know you don't like The Dark Knight or Nolan at all. but Not a fan. To me, the way, the precision he did go into making that movie and knowing what he wanted to do with it, I think is it's overwrought and definitely overhandsy at times for sure. But for me personally, the way that I experienced it was on opening. I was there on release day in Chicago in an IMAX where they had like the tumbler outside and then walked out of the city like in the morning light, like as the sun was coming up, like in what was Gotham essentially after that movie. So like that for me was like, I just had like a transcendent experience with that while I was still in film school. So for me, that was like a movie that I would die on a hill for just from a technical standpoint and from he achieved everything he wanted to do with that movie. Uh, and same with the actors I say in their performances, but um, Sans Bale, who I felt like could have been like a little bit better than that movie, but in terms of the movie overall, I think it just holds up really well. And then um, Gladiator as well, I think was just like a, a movie where it did a lot of things from a movie standpoint, right? Where it was like, it didn't have to be the most historical in some ways. It didn't have to be the most, you know, uh, bloody or gory in some ways. It didn't have to be the most action packed in some ways, but like it had all those elements. There's a reason it won best picture and was a really watchable movie. I think. All right, cool. And for me, I also channel my inner Nolan, uh, inception. I fucking love inception. That is for me. I mean, I didn't want to have this fight with him. I understand. I understand. (laughs) I picked it because the, the single thing that sticks with me from that movie is that concept. What's the most viral thing, right? It's an idea. Is it the, I I don't mind the gong, but no, honestly, like the, like the notion that an idea is the most viral, most difficult thing to kill. Most like once you plant it, it takes on a life of its like, I don't want to say that I've modeled my life or my business philosophy after inception, but the conveyance of like ideas like resonates with me so powerfully. Like I will go to bat for that movie every single day. Okay. Every single day. All right. I think, I think hacking people. Yeah. It's definitely like a very interesting concept and something you can do in your everyday life. Yeah. Even if you don't have a machine that goes in people's dreams. Yeah. Well, I don't have that, but I have a real sweet voice. And if nothing else, like I, I know enough different people that I can convey different ideas to different people. And like, I've honestly been able to say that I can, I've, I have seen, I've watched you incept the, people. Oh yeah. You've seen it. We've yeah, all yeah, seen yeah. it. If you're, if you know me at all, you've, you've you watched me incept somebody actually recently. Yeah. So, yeah. It's what we do. Yeah. It's what I do for sure. You know, I don't have a machine, but I just talk real nice. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, my my no concessions pick this week is going to be a philistine type movie mm. uh tokyo drift hey. fast and oh, furious yeah, yeah. three tokyo drift mainly it's not because the movie is like particularly great okay. but it did it peaked at a time when i was like way into cars uh-huh. and that kind of scene in culture was kind of like the apex of my teen years where we were going to car meets. We were doing a lot of illegal street racing. Oh, what? Yeah. Was, What's your first and last name again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were doing like all kinds of stuff and 
We yeah, remember that, getting, that team was big. Yeah. And the like kind of mid two thousands era, like, yeah, huge. dude, yeah. fusion market or fusion over fu- fusion. Yeah. I used I to go to the movies cool. at Edwards. Speaking of movies and cars, I would go there to the cinemas in Mira Mesa and you would just see like a stacked row of just like racer cars, essentially people yeah. all souped up and you just don't see it anymore. And it's like, yeah, it's totally died out. Yeah. Yeah. It's the hobby is expensive. And also like the scene is a lot different and you get fucked if you're out here racing in the streets yeah it's and yeah i guess as a whole it's kind of died down a lot but tokyo drift in particular did a lot for drift racing at least in in the case of san diego where you can't necessarily do it a lot we used to steal the trays from the mall and when it would rain we'd put them under my friend's back tires and we'd drive around the parking lot really fast and pretend like we were drifting it was really it was really something else uh it, and that kind of i'm picking the movie mainly because of the impact that it had on my childhood or my formative years as a teen not because of the quality and also the music is pretty dope it's fucking fu- tokyo that. drift yeah. i'm with it i'm with it i wonder if you know how the it's yeah uh teriyaki boys pharrell the whole soundtrack actually was pretty banging for that time period, but the movie itself was like really pretty bad. <laughs> but it was definitely impactful. My friend uh, also got way into drifting and wrecked his car because of that specific. He wrecked it drifting because yeah, he had a, I think it was a nice Acura or something like. But yeah, he wrecked it dr- drifting essentially because he got so into it from that movie. So you're not alone for sure. There's Hell yeah, many a person I think it definitely sticks with. Real ones know. Real yes. ones know. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, Drew, where can people find you on uh, socials? At, at Drew Stork, D-R-E-W-S-T-O-R-K. And, yeah, sorry for the the junky pick for you, Denzel, but I wanted to kind of throw something down the middle and see what happened. So it's okay. <laughs> I This is a learning experience for me. I just like watching movies. I'm a big fan of watching movies, so I'll never, I'll never feel like I've wasted my time watching a movie unless if I've had to turn it off. No, but now I know what to pick next time to see if I can get you to laugh. I think that's like my goal now. <laughs> uh, possibly. Yeah. I'm an enigma wrapped yeah. in a mystery. Oof. In uh, fuck another in, word for in, mystery tortilla. In between the lines. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DKNYO. It's D-I-K-E-A-N-Y-I-W-O. Yes. All right. Perfect. Uh, you know where to find me. You know where I'm at. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Drew and DK, for joining this episode. And thank you for doing the recap, Drew. Thanks, man. Saved me a lot of energy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, even if you don't like the movie, I'll, I'll come prepared. Hell yeah. No, Fuck it. yeah, dude. Good time. Appreciate right. the invitation. Thank you for having us. Thanks. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank <laughs> you.